Hello and welcome to this latest part in the WBC online series on the book of Ezekiel. My name is Mike, I'm the pastor at WBC and this fourth part uh, means that we've only got one part left to go afterwards, which for some of you might just be a relief. Certainly for me, this has been a, um, a demanding and quite intense experience looking at the book and preparing these talks. I do hope, and in a moment we'll pray, that the Spirit of God will be with us as we examine uh, the passages that we're looking at today, mostly looking at chapter 24, but also dipping into some of the chapters that follow it as well. So before we go any further, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see these Old Testament words through the lens of your person, your presence, who you are. We recognise that you are the everlasting God, that you are sovereign, and that you are, Jesus, the same God who speaks through Ezekiel. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit we would gather better understanding, that we would be ready to have our, um, our understanding of you uh, enhanced and maybe even transformed, and that we'll be ready to be challenged too by what you show us. Amen. So as I said, the passage we're looking at today is mostly Ezekiel chapter 24. We're reading verses 1 and 2 and then all the way down from verse 9 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 27. Let's read that now. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, record this date, this very date, because the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And then to verse 9. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the city of bloodshed. I too will pile the wood high. So heap on the wood and kindle the fire. Cook the meat well, mixing in the spices and let the bones be charred. Then set the empty pot on the coals till it becomes hot and its copper glows. So that its impurities may be melted and its deposit burned away. It has frustrated all efforts. Its heavy deposit has not been removed, not even by fire. Now your impurity is lewdness. Because I try to cleanse you, but you would not be cleansed from your impurity, you will not be clean again until my wrath against you has subsided. I, the Lord, have spoken. The time has come for me to act. I will not hold back. I will not have pity, nor will I relent. You will be judged according to your conduct and your actions, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, with one blow, I am about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fastened and your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your moustache and beard or eat the customary food of mourners. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. The next morning I did as I had been commanded, and then the people asked me, won't you tell us what these things have to do with us? Why are you acting like this? So I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the people of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, 
I am about to desecrate my sanctuary, the stronghold in which you take pride, the delight of your eyes, the object of your affection. The sons and daughters you left behind will fall by the sword, and you will do as I have done. You will not cover your moustache and beard, or eat the customary food of mourners. You will keep your turbans on your heads and your sandals on your feet. You will not mourn or weep, but will waste away because of your sins and groan among yourselves. Ezekiel will be assigned to you. You will do just as he has done. When this happens, you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. And you, son of man, on the day I take away their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes, their heart's desire, and their sons and daughters as well, on that day a fugitive will come to tell you the news. At that time, your mouth will be opened, you will speak with him and will no longer be silent. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. The first thing to notice from this passage is the date stamp again. You'll notice that right at the top of the chapter, we get what the day is, in what month and in what year, and we get that Ezekiel is told to record that date. It matters. And by the end of the chapter, we understand why it's so important. There are two things happening in this chapter, and they both have to do with judgment. But I've called this uh, session Judgment and Justice because judgment from God is never separate from justice. Let's have a little look at the cooking pot and let's have a little look as well at the death and the mourning. So the cooking pot, uh, we've not included all the verses that refer to it. I picked up from verse 9 and the reason, oh, the reason for that is because A, it's otherwise very long, but B, there's something specific happening from verse 9 onwards. There is in this um, parable, this allegory, meat in the pot, and that meat represents the people left behind in Judah. There's also what's referred to as deposit, uh, which is rust in that pot. Uh, and that rust represents blood or particularly bloodshed. We have a couple of verses earlier, the idea of meat being taken out of the pot, kind of in whatever order it comes. And then a little bit later, we have this idea of meat being taken out of the pot because the pot is rusty or bloodstained. And then we get this idea that the pot is heated so hot that the copper glows. In doing so, God is explaining through Ezekiel uh, that the pot is the nation of Judah, or possibly even the city of Jerusalem, that the people who are left behind are in that, are the meat in that pot, and that, that that meat gets taken out, so the people get removed from Jerusalem. Then we get this reference to rust or deposit, which is to do with um, how blood has been shed in Judah and around Jerusalem uh, to do in ways that are to do with injustice. But also there's a sense of blood being shed because of this siege and its end point. So at this point, the um, Babylonians are enacting their final siege on Jerusalem. There is no way that 
Ezekiel and his companions can possibly know what's going on in a military campaign hundreds of miles away. But God is explaining what's happening. And then you get this idea that the pot's being made incredibly hot so that it can be cleansed. Every other attempt to cleanse it has failed. Scrubbing hasn't worked. Fire hasn't worked. The only thing is to heat it so hot that the impurities kind of melt away. And that is a symbol of the way in which Jerusalem will be a, a, a place of, of hotness, of, of um, hot war, of, of conflict, of those kinds of things as a way of making it clean from what it has been, clean, clean from its corruption, which is where the rust comes in, clean from its injustices, clean from its um, unfaithfulness too, which we looked at in some detail last time around. No other cleaning has worked, says the Lord through Ezekiel. Um, this is verse 12. It has frustrated all efforts. Its heavy deposit has not been removed, not even by fire. So the alternative is to heat it so hot that there's no way anything could survive, including the impurities. Judgment here is about spiritual purification. God wants his people and his city to be made pure again. Notice that in wanting this, he is not giving up on that city or those people. He is not saying, as he did with humanity in the time of Noah, this isn't working, so I'm just going to ditch it. He's saying, if I need to go to extreme measures in order to restore justice and purity, then that's what I'm going to have to do, and I'm not afraid to do it. Judgment has to happen for justice to take place, and justice needs to take place for that place or particularly the people who belong to that place for them to made to be made right again what's interesting in the uh, prophecy that's taking place here is it really has very le much less to do with saying this is what's going to happen and much more to do with saying brace yourself for what's coming and understand how you're going to feel about it understand why it's happening it's not uh, we've got past the point where God is saying this will happen unless something changes. He's now saying things haven't changed, so these things are coming. Uh, and kind of almost wanting to prepare his people for the impact of that and the consequences of it too. It's interesting, isn't it, to see that not only is God not giving up on his people like he did in the time of Noah, and yes, he promised afterwards that he wouldn't do that again, uh, but he's also wanting them to be aware, to prepare them almost for how they're going to feel. And what's really sad is part of the way in which that lesson is taught, which takes us on to the second part of this chapter. The really sad bit here is that Ezekiel, who is a man born into the potential for God's law and his way to be restored, has then lived through the trauma of God's covenant being abandoned, and then the trauma of being removed from his home, and then the trauma of not being a priest in the temple, but instead a prophet um, with such a hard message to give. 
and living in a people who are living through trauma because they have been removed from their home. And yet these traumas haven't ended yet because at this point, God warns Ezekiel that his wife is going to die. What's interesting, perhaps, I think interesting is a hard word in the middle of something so um, heart-wrenching, but what's interesting in this is that different, while different um, translations of the Bible handle this in different ways, there is a translation that refers specifically to an epidemic um, that is going to take the life of Ezekiel's wife. It only appears in one translation that I've found so far, but I, I do find it interesting that we might consider that a, a natural event may have been the cause for Ezekiel's wife's death. In fact, I think it's appropriate that we don't assume that God has killed her off, or plucked her out. I think instead what we might recognise that God is saying here is that she will get ill and won't recover, or that she is going to die. It's not, it's not something that God is causing, but it is something that God is able to use in order to put a message across. So God then wants to use this experience. So he says to Ezekiel, the delight of your eyes will be taken from you. And so Ezekiel is able to pass that on and say, the delight of your eyes will be taken from you, people of Judah. Jerusalem is going to fall. And, and so we see this thing for, where Ezekiel is not so much, not at all, I think, calling, his, calling the people to change, but it's, it's to say, brace for impact. Something awful is coming. And I can express to you how you're going to feel about that. And the way you're going to feel is kind of paralysed or, or stunned into um, kind of an inability to do anything. You, you, won't be, you won't feel able to mourn. You will just be sort of stunned into immobility. So when God gives the instructions to Ezekiel not to mourn, it's not that he's telling the people of Judah that they shouldn't mourn the loss of Jerusalem but instead that it will hit them hard and they will feel completely overwhelmed by it. If you like, this is the end point in this challenge over the theology that the Jews were working to. The people of Judah here were, were being told over and over again that Jerusalem was not sacrosanct in the way that they thought, that this was not a place that had to survive for God to survive. Um, and they've not quite got the hang of it. And so at this point, God is saying, look, it's, I've told you this is going to come. Now it's coming and it's going to shake you. And I know it's going to shake you. and I know it's going to feel horrible. The exiles then in Babylonia by the Kabar River in the settlement of Tel Aviv are from far away awaiting a kind of distant denouement, an, an, an outcome that's mostly based in fear and despair. And the end is a shattering blow. It is a reminder to them, perhaps not something they could grasp at the time, but maybe it came over later, that they had placed their priorities in a wonky way. They, they'd put place ahead of purity. Jerusalem was more important than whether or not they were living in accordance with the covenant. 
they'd put institution over relationship. They were convinced that God would remain with them because that's what the institution expressed, rather than because they had actually sought to maintain a relationship with a God who'd promised to be their God. So that's Ezekiel 24. What I'm not going to do is pick out anything from the following um, few chapters. There are a good few chapters that follow a very similar theme from chapter 25 through to 32 or 33. I should be able to remember which of those two it is. Apologies that I can't. Um, these are judgments on the nations. So they are oracles that pin down the ways in which God wants to hold to account the nations around Judah. So those oracles, those, those announcements of judgment, come against the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines, uh, the nation of Tyre and Sidon, two different nations, although close together, and Egypt too. So in that, God says, I recognise, Judah, that it's not just you. Although he does say earlier, doesn't he, through Ezekiel, your poor behaviour has been even worse than some, that of some of your neighbours. But in this instance, in these oracles, in these chapters, God is, through Ezekiel, saying, yes, I am aware of the way that they've behaved badly, the ways they've mistreated Judah, and they will answer for that. It's not, it's not just that justice comes to Judah. Justice will come to the world. Now, if you go far enough back, you can see that God's intention had always been that his people would not live in isolation, but that they would share with the world what it meant to be the people of God. And that they would share, they would talk about the benefits and they would allow space in their communities for foreigners to come and be part of their community. It's one of the reasons why I find hostility to refugees so difficult, because God's original intention for his people was that they would make space for foreigners all the time. Interestingly, although it's not covered by these oracles, it is the case that Babylonia will eventually go the same way as those other nations and face uh, the consequences of their actions too. Ezekiel doesn't touch on that, Isaiah does elsewhere. But that's really what, it's, what we're getting at here. God is saying there are consequences to actions and that's actually been a running theme throughout Ezekiel. If you behave in certain ways, certain things will follow actions have consequences and causes have effects and really when we get down to it we don't really want God to be out of the way it wouldn't be he wouldn't be a good or a loving God if there weren't consequences when evil is done causes have effects and and if God stood by and, and made it not so then he wouldn't be a just God interestingly in a lot of places where justice is talked about in the Bible, it's taught, talked about in tandem with mercy, justice and mercy. So God will bring justice, but he'll bring that justice in tandem with mercy so that justice doesn't stand alone. It stands alongside um, the other, a, a different part of who God is. I'm reminded at this point that and it's not always popular to say so, but that God has the limitations. We tend to think that God doesn't, and, and for very good reasons, but God does have limitations. He is limited by his character, so he, he can't be unjust, he can't be unkind, he can't not be good. And those are limitations that we cherish 
and are very glad of. So God is committed to his covenant, to his blueprint for how humanity is supposed to work in any nation. He's committed to the marginalised, the victims of injustice, to the integrity of his own name and to the integrity of his principles too. And in, this, in these respects, the nations are answerable to God every bit as much as Judah is. I did want to uh, quote from a psalm um, which I have in front of me, but for some reason didn't note which psalm it is. Uh, I think it might be 137, but I'm not absolutely sure. I'm going to read anyway, and maybe some of you know it. The whole world is under God's authority, uh, writes David. It, and that is both a wonderful and a terrible thing. But David writes it this way. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? The one who has a clean, a pure heart and clean hands, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. And it's interesting that David writes that such a long time before this experience that Judah has. So such a long time before Ezekiel is trying to bring to the attention of God's people what God thinks things should be like, how things ought to work. In chapter 28, we read this. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live there in safety and will build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in safety when I inflict punishment on all their neighbours who maligned them. Then they will know that I am the Lord, their God. I just want to bring us back then to something that we said earlier, that God has not given up on his people despite their unfaithfulness, despite their appalling behaviour and the awful treatment of their own people through injustice and their appalling treatment of God in his faithfulness and his grace. He's not given up on them and he pledges to restore them. He's going to make things the way they ought to be. This is where justice and mercy come hand in hand again. God is not content simply to bring the harshness of his judgment, the, the reality of the standards that God lives by. Not content to just do that. He also wants to bring mercy. He also wants to restore his people, to make them clean again, to renew the relationship with them, to make things right. And we see this echoed in the way the New Testament talks about the role Jesus has as the ultimate judge. Jesus's responsibilities include judging creation. And we may rightly feel that that's a scary thing. My perspective on the, on the, on the judgment of Jesus on the day of the Lord at the end of, of this age is that it's going to be terrifying. But I'm also really confident that it will come hand in hand with mercy and that the purpose behind a lot of it is, all of it indeed, is to restore God's original intention for his creation. That is, a people who he invites to share his presence, a people who are welcome in his community. Jesus came to demonstrate 
what that was like to remind us of the principles that God lives by and has wanted to pass on to his greatest um, creation, humanity. Finally, I just want to make that reminder that Ezekiel is a book about real consequences. All the way through, this prophet, prophet of trauma, has been consistent in the messages that he's passed on from God. When you behave in a particular way, you have to live with the fact that your behaviour's causes will have effects. And God doesn't always um, insulate us from the impact of our choices. But he does always couple justice with mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can depend on your character. We thank you for the ways in which you walk with Ezekiel in such traumatic set settings and situations. And we ask that we would be constantly reminded that you will bring justice. That those who have been treated badly will know justice. And that all of us who face your judgment will do so knowing that your mercy is present too. Amen. Okay, then here's our three questions for this session. Question one, what are the characteristics of God that you are most pleased he is limited by? That's kind of a long and complicated question, but you know we've talked about how God has limits. In what ways are you glad he does? Perhaps that's a better way of putting it. Question two, is it right that everybody is held responsible for their own behaviour? I ask this question because God expects his own people to live by a certain um, just way of doing things. And he also seems to hold those people who aren't his to the same standard. Is that OK? Is it reasonable to expect those who don't follow God to live by his expectations? And I think probably we also want to ask if that is OK, why is it okay? And if it's not okay, what's the problem with it? Question three. Was it unfair for God to allow Ezekiel's wife to die? Ezekiel has been a faithful servant of God and has been his prophet and has shared everything that God has asked him to share. And yet his wife dies and God wants this to be some kind of indication to the people. Is that okay? And by, by thinking about that question, maybe there's one that goes with it, which is, is it OK for us to suffer? Shouldn't we reasonably expect God to keep suffering away from us because we are his people? As we finish, let's pray. Father God, we thank you, first of all, that you instructed Ezekiel to write down dates so that it might be possible for you to demonstrate that you were speaking through him. We thank you that you spoke with clarity 
for all that the ways you spoke are frightening. We thank you that you confirmed your message by that fugitive arriving. And in the middle of all of that, we thank you that your mercy follows us. And your goodness does too, all the days of our lives. Amen. Thank you for joining us for part four of this series. Next time is our last part, it's part five, and we'll be talking about restoration and renewal, which is a theme of the later part of Ezekiel. It's good to have you with us. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Take care and God bless. <laughs>